Let's pray. Lord, we can, we know, Lord, that all truth is your truth. And so we can find it in so many different ways. And as we've talked about this painting by Dolly, Lord, there is a lot in it that points right to you and to your love and to your compassion for humanity. And so as we look at the text in Matthew, Lord, about that, that day 2,000 years ago when you were uh, taken to the cross, hung up on that cross, and gave your life for, the, for that we could experience shalom, not just internally with you, but within our own lives, in our relationship with each other, and in all of creation, Lord, this, this act, this what seemed like a horrible, awful act on the surface is, but at the same time, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Because in it, redemption came. The kingdom came. True life and life to the fullest is available because of what you went through on the cross. And so as we look at the text in Matthew, as we continue to talk about the connection of this text with the painting, I pray that you guide and direct our conversations Lord, may they be uh, insightful. May they challenge us so that we could look more and more and more like you to be shaped into your image and to your likeness. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. So let me give you some background in case you don't know who this man Salvador Dali is and was. In case you're not an art historian or in case you just thought, Man, Dolly is weird. I don't understand it. In fact, the first time that I experienced a Dolly painting in person, it was in 2007. And I was standing in the Tate Modern Art Gallery in London. And I remember uh, standing in front of a piece of art, which we're going to look at later uh, down the road of our series called basically Cannibalism in Autumn. And I remember thinking, this is ugly. Like, I don't like it. But then I remember as I looked farther at it, there was a, a scripture that popped into my mind. And I, I was like, wow, that's amazing. Like, that somehow God was speaking through me to me through this piece of work that I don't even like. And I was like, wow, I wonder if there's more to it. And then I, stood to, I stepped to the right and saw his metamorphosis of Narcissus, which we'll also look at. And I felt God say something else to me. And I'm like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't like these paintings. I don't like Dolly's work. It's, it doesn't speak to me. But yet, God, you spoke to me through two paintings I don't like. And so I'm like, I bet there's more. I bet there's more to Dolly than I think. And I bet there's more to his work than I believe. And so that's why I was like, Let's, why don't we unpack more? And so that's how the, that's how the creation of this sermon kind of came together. Um, and so just to give you some uh, background, my, my daughter is right. Uh, he was a surrealist artist, which again meant that it's surreal, meaning it doesn't actually reflect realism. It's distorted in some way, shape, or form. So we know a lot of his works are just bizarre. 
But actually, many of his works, especially later in his life, actually point to a reemergence of faith in his life. He he re- he was Spanish, and he returned later in life to his Catholicism and his Catholic roots. Um, and some I was reading; it was interesting. I was reading something, and the the person who was uh, writing was saying he was wavering between agnosticism and Catholicism. Like like every day it was like he kind of woke up and he was like, I don't know if I believe this. I guess I believe it. Like back and forth. And like if we're all honest, I think we all are there at times. Like we all go, yeah, I don't know. You know? And so he, um, but a lot of his paintings, a lot of his work, whether um, like the one we looked at was like directly religious or kind of pointed to some things about the kingdom. Um, like some of the paintings that I talked about a little earlier, they don't like you can't see them directly connecting to Jesus, but through some of the values, some of the things that they were working at, they do point to Jesus and His kingdom. And so we're going to look at Matthew twenty-seven. That's where we're going. Uh, twenty-seven to fifty. We're going to do a little bit of background on Dolly, and then we'll go to the text. And so Dolly was. Uh, He was born in 1904, and he died in 1989. Um, So many of us were alive while he was alive. I was in high school when he died. Um, I didn't know that at the time. I I didn't know Dolly that much. But uh, he had technical skill, precise draftsmanship, and striking and bizarre images. He was born in Spain. He was educated in Madrid. He was influenced by Impressionism and Renaissance masters. He liked cubism and avant-garde movement. So he started moving closer to surrealism and joined the surrealist group in 1929. Some of us know his best-known work is The Persistence of Memory. Now, you might not know that by the name, but if I said melting clocks, you would go, oh, yeah, I get that. Yeah, melting clocks. That is is probably his number one um, painting, best-known. He lived in France during the Spanish Civil War, and then he came to the United States in 1940. And then only eight years later, after World War II, he decided he was going to go back to Spain. And that movement back to Spain led into, as I said, a returning to his Catholic upbringing and his Catholic roots. And so we see this return in his most popular work, his The Christ of St. John of the Cross, which was actually inspired by a piece of work in about the 1600s by a man by the name of St. John of the Cross. That's where the title Christ of St. John of the Cross came from. So if you like go Google St. John of the Cross, you'll find a, a, a more of a pencil drawing from the 1600s that looks a lot like what Dolly then did. And so we're going to go to Matthew 27, and we're going to start there. Matthew 27. We'll start with 27 through 31. And this is the account of Jesus on the way to the cross. 27 to 31. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. 
Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. So what we pick up is we're picking up in the middle of the story. And what we see right before this in chapter 27 is Judas has a, like, some kind of moment where he realizes that he has condemned an innocent man. And he's wrestling with this guilt and struggle of, like, condemning Jesus to death. And he takes the 30 pieces of silver that he was given to betray Jesus. He throws it back. And then he goes out and commits suicide. He's guilt, he's full of grief and guilt, and he commits suicide. And then after that, Jesus stands before Pilate, who releases another prisoner, an insurrectionist by the name of Jesus Barabbas, and then turns to Jesus and hands him over to be flogged and crucified. Now, the interesting thing is what we see in this part of the text is they take Jesus from the presence of Pilate and into the praetorium. They disrobe him, whatever clothes he was wearing. And did you notice what they put on him? A scarlet robe. They twist together a crown of thorns and they push it into his head and they give him a staff. Scarlet or purple is the color of kingship. Kings wore a crown. Kings held a scepter, a staff. And so what they're doing is they are showing him that he is king. Now, they're mocking him. They're saying, you're not really king. Hail, king of the Jews. It's a mockery. But all these things point to the fact that Jesus is king. But they don't understand it. Because all they understand is from an empire, worldly point of view. A king who yields violence to get their own way. A king who kills his enemies, not is killed by his enemies. And so as they see Jesus, they can't figure out, you say he's a king, but all the kings I've ever known don't act like that. And so they mock him because they cannot understand. What we see here is the king of kings and the lord of lords is mocked, beaten, and executed by the coming together of the empire and religion to kill him. They pulled together, said he is not king. He's not a king that I've ever seen. He, they, the kings of this world... The empire leaders, religious, governmental, they bring division, violence, and death. Jesus, king of the kingdom of the world, brings healing, restoration, liberty, life, and shalom through his life, his death, his resurrection, as his ascension. I found a, uh, a quote by, the man, by a man named Stanley Sounders, who's a professor of New Testament, says this. They failed to see, they being religious leaders, the uh, empire, says this. They fail to see that Jesus' vocation as king and savior turns on his conquest of death, not avoidance of it. Moreover, Jesus has come not to save himself, but others, including the very people who betray, mock, and crucify him. The very people who are holding the nails, holding the hammer, 
who led him out, who were beating him and mocking him. That's who he came to set free. They could never understand. The empire doesn't understand that kind of kingship. Because empire is pushed on by violence and threat of violence. You get out of line. This is what the whole thing about the crucifixion is. If you get out of line with the empire, you will end up on this cross. It's a very, very effective way to keep people down. In fact, actually, you would go into Jerusalem. You would pass hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people hanging on crosses as you went in. It's, It's a statement of saying, again, we will put you down if you come up against us. So this, this king who loved his enemies, who turned the other cheek, who didn't kill his enemies to set up a new empire, but gave his life up to create a kingdom. This is why he was mocked, scorned, and killed. And so then the soldiers take off his robe, take off the crown, Take back the scepter. You're not king. Kings don't go to the cross. And so they led him out to be crucified. Matthew 27, 32 to 44. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. They forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up the clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults, shaking their heads, saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, teachers of the law, elders mocked him. He saved others, they said. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now, if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insult on him. So what we see right here is an unmasking of the powers and the principalities that are at work that came together to extinguish the son of God. We see humanity coming together to kill God, to kill the Son of God. For humanity to pour out our wrath on the one who bore our sins. We see the rebels, the ones that are hanging beside him, pouring out their derision on the one who is with them. We see the religious leaders mocking him, questioning that Jesus was even truly God. If you are the son of God. They were saying, you, you can't bring about salvation through death on a cross. It doesn't make sense because you have lost. You haven't won. There is no victory. They couldn't understand that something looked, that looked like death was actually a victory. That failure, or so it seems from a worldly point of view, is actually the way to victory. Over death, evil, and hell, the empire couldn't see what was happening. 
Humanity couldn't see what was happening. We couldn't see what was happening. Another quote from the same writer, an act that was supposed to be an expression of Roman domination, a form of religious ritual and social theater meant to dehumanize victims and break down communities of resistance. Jesus was ascending the throne as he went up to the cross. He was becoming king in the very act of them saying, you aren't king. This was his ascension. This was his coronation and that the kingdom was coming and was being established by Jesus' death on the cross. So go back, go back to that picture, Christ of St. John of the Cross. I was flying on Thursday home from Omaha attending the National Youth Conference, no, not annual conference of the Church of the Brethren. And I'm reading a book called The Underground Church by Brian Sanders. And in the middle of the chapter I'm reading, he mentions the very painting that we were going to talk about this week. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. So I was like, i got to obviously use the quote because it's confluence of my life, what I was reading, and what we're talking about. And so this is what he says. What makes the painting remarkable? And actually, you guys already nailed this, so it may seem like a repeat. What seems remarkable is its point of view. It's a depiction of the crucifixion from above. It is presumably God's view of the event. And he continues, Dolly's painting draws us anew into the idea of the cross as a thing of beauty. Beauty, Wonderful cross. If you stood there on that day, you would never put wonderful and cross in the same sentence. Not horror. His portrait, as you guys said, no blood, no gore, and the agony on his face is obscured. It's less realistic than some portrayals, but makes an important part. God's view of the cross would have been different than ours, end quote. So much is true. Because if you and I were standing there like the disciples, if you and I were standing there like the women at the foot of the cross, all the things that you poured your life into falling through your hands, everything you gave your life to for the last three years is done dead but what we see in the death so Simon the Cyrene carries the cross for Jesus he's too weak up the hill they lay him down they drive the nails into his feet into his wrist they put the cross up and drop it into the hole with a thud and is hanging just he just drops into place and he's hanging on the cross we see the rebels and the empire mocking him and this is what we read at the end 45 to 50 from the sixth hour until the ninth hour darkness came over the land about the ninth hour Jesus cried out in a loud voice Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means my God, my God why have you forsaken me? When some of them standing there heard us, he said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. What we see in the death 
of Jesus on the cross is the live reality of what he was all about. What his teachings were all about. He didn't just teach one thing and do another. His teachings and his life were wholly together. Don't we all wish we could live in that reality where our words and our actions beautifully mesh together? But what we see in this passage, the story of the crucifixion, is, is he lived what he taught. Compare Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, with the crucifixion. What do we see? Jesus teaches, turn the other cheek, and then he's beaten without a response. Jesus teaches to give them your outer garment and your inner garment so that you would be naked. And so when he goes to the cross, he has no garments on him. Jesus teaches, hey, if someone says, go with me a mile with a pack on, go with them too. And Simon carries a pack called the cross. What we see in the death of Jesus is that the powers and the principalities, the evil one, the Satan, who had departed Jesus in Matthew 4 and the temptation of the wilderness, returns back. We see that the voices of the rebels and the religious leaders, they both say, if you are the son of God. Remember in the temptation, if you are the son of God, turn the stone to bread. If you are the son of God, jump off this mountain, off this hill, you will be saved. And now the religious leaders, the rebels, say the same thing. If you are the Son of God, the powers and principalities of this dark world are back again. And they tempt Jesus to use his power to come off the cross, to fight, to get his way. He said, if I could call down a legion, but I don't. My followers could fight. But they don't, because that was the way of the empire. That is the way of the kings of this world, not the kings of the kingdom. What we see in the death of Jesus is that the way he wields power. He could have called legions, I said. He doesn't. He could have called his followers to fight, but they don't. He came to serve and not to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He used his power to wash his enemies' feet. He used his power to save the very ones who were betraying him, mocking him, condemning him, crucifying him. He used his power to absorb all the evil, all the hatred, all the sin, all the brokenness, all the anger, all the wrath of humanity. And what does he do with it? He turns it out. He transforms it, sends it as love, grace, forgiveness, compassion, healing, mercy, redemption, reconciliation, shalom. Somehow, he took all that upon himself and was able to transform it. He wielded his power given to him by the Father. This is how the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, shows what true power is like. And so, a couple things. We are called by his name. We, if we want to see the kingdom come and his will be done, then we must live in the same way that Jesus lived his life. The way that he wielded his power, we need to wield the power that we have to do the very thing. Too often in our world today, Christians are using empire power instead of kingdom power to get their world. To get the, they, hey, we got to get it done this way. And so what do we do? We say, well, if the end result is right, then it doesn't matter how you get there. But it is. There's a problem. 
We are called to wash feet. We are called to humble ourselves, serve others, not for them to serve us, not to get our own way, not to get caught in a culture war. We're not called to that. In fact, we must confess that we're all often, too often, the ones who have killed Jesus. Not the idea that God is the one who poured his wrath out on Jesus. We are the ones. We are the ones who brought their violence and his death. And so if we want to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. And lastly, true shalom, wholeness, peace, the way things should be is because of his death on the cross. That we can be in right relationship with God. We can be in right relationship with ourselves. We can be in right relationship with each other. And we can be in right relationship with all of creation because of his death on the cross. But I love it. Is that, that picture is not the end of the story. We all know about three days later, he rose again, defeating the powers of sin, death, evil, hell, and the empire. And so, 